This podcast is brought to you by Killing Time Productions. Don't forget to check out on Tuesdays and Saturdays our other podcast on the network starring me, Trevor Truitt, and Cameron Frizzell. And now it is time for episode two of the Rolling Stones. What's going on, ladies and gentlemen? That's how you start a fucking podcast right there. What's going on? I'm your host, Jared Cornelius. And uh, Jesus Christ, what a fucking song. Guys, I gotta tell you, you know, I don't know if I've mentioned on this one or the war on this podcast or the war room, um, my most listened to artist last year was the Rolling Stones, uh, which is the first time since I've been keeping up with my Apple Music replay um that black sabbath hasn't been my most listened to band in the last three years i think um because they're my favorite i mean i'm not gonna lie the rolling stones though last year i made them my personal project and uh me listening to them for as long as i did last year really inspired me to want to do this podcast because like they're so fucking good and like i love listening to them because like i'm not gonna lie there's like a handful there's there's a lot of bands i really enjoy that are from the 60s but for the most part if you listen to more mainstream artists and you know the first half of the beatles career before they like you know branched off on their own and really started making music reflecting their own personal interest um the rolling stones they always just had a fucking vibe about them man they always had just a dirtiness that i really like like the reason why the rolling stones are gonna start uh, be the first band why I chose them is because in my world, the world, the Jared Cornelius's fucking world, the Tarantino version of the of the story of rock and roll, the Rolling Stones are the bass band. They are the root of it all, in my opinion. You know, yeah, I like the Beatles. I like a lot of their music. I would say, um, I'm not gonna get into whether or not I think they're the greatest band ever. I think uh, music is subjective, and uh, it's whatever you're into. You know, y- you could think, like I said. You could think fucking The Grateful Dead is the greatest band ever. I'm probably not going to agree with you, but I'm not going to, like, I don't give a fuck. I mean, there are certain people, like bands, if you said they're your favorite band, I might look at you a little differently, or I might, uh, you know, not talk to you anymore. But, hey, you know, that's just, that's how the world is. You know, and I'm getting older now, and, uh, you know, I think I know enough people. I think I, I know who I want to know. I don't know if I'm really interested in having uh, or meeting new friends, you know. But uh, but with the Rolling Stones and them being like the bass band for me within the story of rock and roll, it's just like if you look at like I'm not going to deny the Beatles probably inspired more kids to want to be musicians than the Rolling Stones maybe did. But I definitely think when it comes to the sound of rock and roll, I mean, other than the guys that came before, um, I'm talking more like going forward um the rolling stones they were it like i mean other than the fact that like for 60 years they've put out very like incredible music i've listened to every rolling stones album there is i swear fucking put me on a polygraph test i will fucking pass that shit if you ask me and i can honestly say i don't think they have a bad album they have albums that i don't prefer to listen to over some of their other stuff but i will say this right now um, the string of albums we're going to be going over today are by far my favorite of the band. I will go as far to say that this, these, the, uh, these albums that we're going to be discussing are the, not only the Rolling Stones' best, I think this is the best, you know, 
you know, this is the best form of this band that there's ever been. They've had incredible musicians. Brian Jones was incredible. Um, Mick Taylor's uh, replacement, Ron Wood, who is their current uh, guitar, uh, second guitar player uh, next to Keith Richards. He's fucking incredible. Um, had a successful solo. We'll get into all that, but like this, this like this form of the band with Mick Taylor as a second guitar player is, in my opinion, the best, and that's why their music that they put out with him there is the best. Thing. Because he, like, I will be completely honest. I think Mick Taylor, um, and we'll discuss it towards the end of the episode. Um, this guy could have been like. Jimi Hendrix, he could have been, like, a, a, like not just, like, a member of a band, he could have, like, a Robin Trower, uh, like, an Eric Clapton, you know, something like that, a standalone solo artist that you don't just, like, you know, he could have done that, but instead, like, and but he was only 20 when he ended up, well, <laughs> I'm trying to get ahead of myself, I'm sorry, I'm very excited about today's episode, but, I mean, for a kid that was 20 years old when he got into the music, like, he got into music very young, as we'll see, and uh, for him to really, like, produce the kind of, you know, music that he did while he was with the Rolling Stones in such a young age, from the age of, like, 20 to 25, 26, I would say. I mean, this guy lived a long fucking life in just his 20s, but, like, he really did sacrifice, like, stardom as a sol- as a solo artist, really, in my opinion, to be one of those guys, like, like, if you ask, like, people that know shit about guitars, they know Mick Taylor is always considered one of the best blues, uh, fusion guitarist ever. He's all, if you look at, if you want to look up uh, any, like, lists like that, he's always in the top 20 that I've seen. And, you know, and it's deservingly, he's, he's a fantastic guitar player, he's still around, um, but we'll get into it, uh, but God, that song we started off with, that's called Can't You Hear Me Knocking, and oh my God, it's one of my favorite Rolling Stones songs ever. And in my opinion, one of the best opening riffs to a song ever. You can debate me if you'd like. Send me a message on, DM me on Twitter or any of my other social medias if you know it, and uh, ask me if you have questions. I will answer them at the end of every podcast if I have any. So without further ado, let's get into episode two. Oh, sorry. Yeah. Let's get into part two of the Rolling Stones. So, just a recap. Brian Jones is dead. He died. He fucking, he went overboard. He did too much. He drowned in a pool. Um, Which, you know, there's conspiracy theory about it, but guess what? I'm not a conspiracy theorist, so I'm not going to fucking get into it. So, moving on. The year is 1969. The Rolling Stones, one of the world's biggest bands, were in a weird spot. Fame and success had gotten the better of the band with all the drugs and the partying. Brian Jones had died by drowning in his own pool, leaving the Rolling Stones in need of a new replacement for their former agent of experimentation. Not long after Brian's death, they'd find that replacement in Mick Taylor. Now, I will say, I wrote that to make it dramatic. Um, Mick Taylor was about to replace him anyway. Um, the, the the, The wheels were in motion long before... Brian Jones's dismissal, like they had, because they knew it was coming. He wasn't slowing down. Um, they just, they, there was no de-escalation in Brian Jones's partying. So, you know, they they already knew. And Mick Taylor was actually um, recommended, as we'll see. Mick Taylor, a former member of John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, which, sidebar, oh shit, if you want to get into a band with some fucking history, which we're going to get into, look these guys up, they're fantastic, they're a fantastic, unappreciated 60s blues rock band, John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, look them up. Mick Taylor was a phenomenal singer, songwriter, and guitar player. He was with John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, from 1966 to 1969 before joining the Rolling Stones. Together, the Rolling Stone with the Rolling Stones, they would create arguably the best work in their catalog. Mick Taylor helped contribute to classic albums such as Let It Bleed, Live Album Get Your Yaga's Out, Sticky Fingers, Exile on Main Street, and It's Only Rock and Roll. Now, before we get into those albums, Let's take a look at Mick Taylor's early life pre-Rolling Stones, which I will say today, 
Um, like I said, first episodes are always going to be more, uh, you know, musician profiles um, combined with talking about the like, because a lot of the times with bands, unless they're just like fucking Led Zeppelin, which boom, Led Zeppelin one and then boom, Led Zeppelin two. And then, you know, they, they had a trend there, as you can see. Um, a lot of the early stuff, especially with these older bands that we're going over first, um, they're their first few albums. While they are great, a lot of the bands that are as old as the Rolling Stones started off as like cover bands. So, but we're gonna try and focus more on. I want people to know everybody in the band. So I'm gonna do profiles of all the key members of the band, and that's why episode ones are usually just more like Mick Jagger was born and blah blah. I'm sorry. Like I said, school isn't exciting on the first day. It gets better. I promise. Okay, Michael Kevin Taylor was born on January 17, 1949, in Garden City, England. Born to a working-class family, his father served the Havilland, the Havilland Aircraft Company as a fitter. He worked in Hatfield, Hertfordshire, in England, and Mick was raised there. I can't wait to talk a fucking about an American band, because all these uh, fucking British names have been... Let me tell you something. Sidebar. All right, I'm going to say that every time I'm getting away from the story. I, I know it's been like two weeks since I put out episode one. And what I've realized is there's no way to know whenever I'm going to be done with these. It takes me a long time to write. I can only do it whenever I feel like it. If I don't, then I just, you know. And you know what? You know what? My fucking wrist hurts, okay? My wrist hurt, okay? I don't want to write for hours on end. What do I look like? A scribe? Well, I guess I kind of am now that I think about it. I mean, I pride myself on being a scribe. But, like, I didn't think I'd ever have to, like, write it like I am now. But you know what? I'm putting the work in so everybody, all you fucking people can hear about it. So I'm going to say these hard-to-pronounce British words as the best I can. And and you know what? Whenever we start talking about countries, uh, cities and states in America, I promise it'll be easier. Moving on. He worked in Hatfield, Hertfordshire in England, and Mick was raised there. He was raised in Hatfield, Hertfordshire. Um, Taylor's mother and brother played the guitar and taught young Mick how to play. Growing up in a household like this, Mick started playing guitar at the tender age of nine. Hmm. I don't know if I like the way I worded that, tender age. Um, Mick would accompany his parents to see bands like Bill Haley and the Comets, which he loved their performances so much it even inspired him to join an American rock band later in life. Um... Bill Haley and the Comets, I will say, I'm not a big fan. I think it just sounds like shitty fucking 50s rock. But you know what? You know, I'll give them their due. A lot of people credit them as being the real first rock band because they formed in the mid-50s. But, like, come on. Who's cooler? Bill Haley and the Comets or the fucking Rolling Stones? I mean, let's be real here, okay? Um, as a teenager, Mick would form bands with other kids he met at his school and perform at local uh, perform local concerts. One of the bands he joined was called The Gods. The Gods, you can actually look up. They're really good. Um, I listened to them um, uh, a lot during this. And that's another thing. Like, The farther we go along the story, a lot more bands are starting to become intertwined with the Rolling Stones as they start to go out further and further. And uh, But you can look up The Gods. They're really good. Um, and what's cool about a lot of these like small bands that start off, they always have members that go on to be in bigger bands or become bigger than who they are. Um, so the gods were formed in 1965. Their members included Brian Glasscock <laughs> and his brother John. His brother John Glasscock. <laughs> the Glasscock. Both would play, and they would both go on to play with Jethro Tull, who would be a big band who, you know, fucking famously won a Grammy for best uh, rock or metal performance over Metallica, and everybody booed, as they should have, because that was wrong. Um... They also, it also had keyboardist Ken Hensley, who would go on to play in Uriah Heep, which Uriah Heep, who will get a series, and I suppose Jethro Tull might get an episode or two, but Uriah Heep is really good, very uh, overlooked band um, from the 70s, like really good rock band. Um, Lee Kerslake would join in, uh, and he would join in uh, 1967, and he would go on to play in bands. He would also go on to play in Uriah Heep, and he was also the drummer for uh, Ozzy's first couple of. Uh, he w he was the recording drummer for Ozzy's first two solo albums, Blizzard of Oz and uh, Diary of a Madman. Which you know, you know me, I'm a fucking Ozzy guy, and those two albums are like bibles to me. 
They're like they're like Bibles to me. I I, I have them everywhere with me, and I re I I often visit them to uh, reflect and meditate and uh, get my life back on track. You know, I got to hear over the mountain every couple days. Moving on. In 1966, the gods were open for legendary band Cream, who is who has uh, Eric Clapton, um, Jack Bruce, and Ginger Baker. Um, they opened for Cream at the uh, Starlight Ballroom in Wembley, London. The gods found success with the single "Come On Down to My Boat, Baby," slash uh, Garage Man. A lot of British bands did that, um, which released in early 1967 from Polydor Records. Back when Mick was 16 in 1965, he attended a Mayall's Blues Breakers concert. He noticed that the guitarist hadn't shown up, and he approached John Mayall himself to offer his skills. Mayall um, agreed, and this would prove crucial to the start of Mick's career, as he would just three years later become the new guitarist in the Blues Breakers band after his stint with the Gods was over. And you know what's uh, what's, uh, interesting is... um, he was replacing the guy that didn't show up that night was actually a little uh, known guy. I don't know if you've heard of him, uh, Eric Clapton. Eric Clapton didn't show up that night. And um, what's and uh, what's cool about uh, John Mayall's in the in the Blues Breakers, uh, Eric Clapton was the replacement of a uh, future uh, Fleetwood Mac blues guitarist Peter Green, um, which we'll talk about. We'll have to do a, a Fleetwood Mac series. Might be long because a lot of people don't even fucking know that original Fleetwood Mac shit. They don't even fucking get it. They don't even know who Peter Green is, and it's a fucking shame. I might not even do the Stevie Nicks one, which I do love Stevie Nicks led Fleetwood Mac, but they that ain't real Fleetwood Mac, okay? Other than the fact, you know, whatever, I'm not going to get into that right now. It's an emotional topic. But uh, Mick had big shoes to fill as he was replacing legendary blues guitarist Peter Green and uh, Eric, Cla- and he would also rep- uh, be replacing uh, Eric Clapton. Um, Mike would... Uh, Mick, oh, sorry. Mick, <laughs> Mick would, um, they, he would debut at a venue. I'm sorry. The way I fucking write sometimes, you can tell my wrist started hurting because my starts turning into scribbles. Like, I couldn't read the word. I feel like a fucking moron, you know? You know how embarrassing it is right now? I've got my dog staring at me, and I feel like he definitely knows whenever I'm, uh, stuttering like a fucking idiot over here. But, uh, Mick would debut at a venue called Manor House in London. Mick's performance was highly anticipated by the fans because they wanted to see if he had what it took to replace uh, the two guitarists, uh, Eric Clapton and Peter Green, who at that time when he de- uh, replaced them had already like gone on to form Fleetwood Mac and Cream. So uh, Mick Taylor would tour with John Mayall until 1969. He would also contribute to some of the band's best albums, such as Crusade, Diary of a Band, Bear Wires, and Blues from Laurel Canyon, which that's my favorite one. Uh, from John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, which the ones with Eric Clapton, they're really good too. The first two albums have Eric Clapton on them, so I definitely suggest that. And the ones with Peter Green, John Mayall's in the Blues Breakers have incredible music. I would just look, look listen to all of it. Um, during his time with the band, he developed a style that was blues based with like Latin and jazz influences. He would also become quite the slide guitarist. In 1969, John Mayall recommended Taylor's name to lead vocalist of the Rolling Stones, Mick Jagger, following the removal and death of a former guitarist, Brian Jones. Soon after, a new musical journey, soon after, a new musical journey for Mick Taylor began. On July 5th, 1969, he made his debut performance with the band at a free concert at London's Hyde Park. Which, little known fact, uh, his debut album, his sorry, his debut performance with uh, the Rolling Stones uh, there was 250,000 people there estimated, I believe. Look it up and prove me wrong, but I'm pretty sure that's how many people were estimated to be there because it was a free show and it's fucking Rolling Stones. And they got a new guy. But uh, Mick Taylor would be a part of arguably the greatest albums the Stones would ever release. Let It Bleed, Get Your Yaya's Out, Sticky Fingers, Rock and Roll, sorry, another live album, Rock and Rolling Stones, Exile on Main Street, and it's only Rock and Roll. Well, let's get into the first album, Mick and the Stones would record, 1969's Let It Bleed. So, like I was saying, I'm going to go album by album, because I really want this episode to be more music-based, because there's not, I just... This, because during this time, they were on the road constantly, they were in the studio constantly, um, non-stop, so... 
um, the album string the story together perfectly. So let's get into it. The first album they recorded with Mick Taylor, Let It Bleed, which I will say is one of the better Rolling Stones albums. If you want to get into them truly, um, you don't have to listen to their first album and go on. It's you know, You're not watching a movie in chronological order. You can listen to whatever the fuck you want. If I was to recommend you listen to an album to get into the Rolling Stones, I'd listen to this one because it, uh, I mean, right off the start, I mean, from the start, it's Gimme Shelter. It's one of their fucking, it's probably a top five song of theirs. I mean, it might not be in my top five because I like more of their obscure stuff, but I can't skip it when it comes on. And then it goes straight into Love in Vain. And with this album, which we'll get into, but like, you can really see their country influence come out in this and i love it and i love breaking it to people that rock and roll wouldn't exist without country and i'm not a big country music fan i'm not listening to all that new shit i listen as far as i'm concerned country music could have stopped after at the uh end of 1980 and i wouldn't give a fuck and yes i'm including all the 90s guys i can live with 80 back to the 50s i can and that's what i've always said but let it bleed um it's it's just fantastic and it's it's good it's a good start if you're really wanting to get into the Rolling Stones. So all these albums is what I would listen to. It'll make you a Rolling Stones fan and then you can stomach all the other stuff because I feel like if you try to listen to their 80s stuff on I don't know, you might not get it. and then if you listen to their early stuff you might not be turned off because a lot of people just can't handle stuff that sounds old. That's what I've learned. Um I love old music. Uh, I think it's incredible how they were able to make it sound as good as they did with the equipment that they did compared to what we have now. Recording, I think, is a lost art compared to how they used to do it because, like, the effort and the time and the perfecting that they had to do to get a a track ready to be put on, uh, you know, it's just incredible. But uh, then this album is a great, um, it's it's just a great example of uh, good old-fashioned studio recording. I mean, it's it's fantastic. It sounds great. But uh, moving on. Let It Bleed came at the end of the 60s and the fall of the counterculture movement, and in a way, it was a poetic justice. The Rolling Stones' previous album, Beggar's Banquet, was a mouthpiece for the common man, with songs like Street Fighting Man, to really, uh, Street Fighting Man, and, uh, um, Dear uh, Jigsaw Puzzle, um, it really captured the spirit of the times. But in just a matter of a year, the world changed drastically. And 68 to 69 was, like, it's insane how the, the changes the country went to. You have to do a lot of reading about it, because obviously I didn't grow up then. But, like, just reading about it, they, like, it's such a change in culture. Like, there hasn't been a huge change in, like, there was a huge, I think the second huge, biggest change in culture was, uh, between the 2000s and the teens, whenever, like, like we just made a huge jump, like, advancement-wise, but anyway, um, but in just a matter of the year, the world changed drastically, but as with Beggar's Banquet, Let It Bleed was a return to the group's more blues sound that was a prominent, uh, that was more prominent pre-Aftermath era, which, Aftermath is great, listen to it, um, this album would also draw influence from gospel country, blues, and country rock. Very country-oriented album also, um, which it's not a bad thing. Check it out and see if you like it. Um, a lot happened within the time Let It Bleed was recorded. The album was recorded from November of 1968 to November of 1969. The album was recorded at Olympic in London and Electra, and Electra Sound Records in Los Angeles. They recorded... In multiple studios a lot because it was hard to keep them all together for a long period of time. Um, Mick Taylor was hired after principal recording was complete and it prepared uh, and appeared on two songs. Keith Richards had uh, been the sole studio guitarist up until that point. Mick, Bill, and Charlie had appeared on nearly every track and the album had contributions by percussionist and producer Jimmy Miller an English pianist, Nicky Hopkins, right, uh, famous slide guitarist, Ry Cooter even appears on the album, which, well, I'm going to tell a cool story at the end, after I'm done with the uh, original episode about an album that came out that I'm going to recommend with him on it, but, um, Let It Bleed charted top 10 in several markets. It went number one in the UK and number two in the US. Many of the songs on this album Gimme Shelter, You Can't Always Get What You Want, and Midnight Rambler are considered some of the best they ever did. And you know what? It's true. 
Um, I think the album itself is. Uh, I mean, I personally, I think it's incredible. Um, it's one of my. It's one of my favorites. Um, I've listened to it a lot. Give me shelter was the song that really made me a huge Rolling Stones fan. If I have to agree, and I'm not gonna lie. I grew up and I was like, ah, they're not bad, but I, I didn't think they were, like, if you grow up listening to fucking hardcore metal and those fast-ass musicians and the technical ability of it, you can't, it's hard to stomach the Rolling Stones, and it, it was until I got older that I found an appreciate, a more of appreciation for music like them, and uh, this album really is, like, I'm, that's why I recommended to new listeners, because it, this is the album that got me into it, so... um. And you can't always get what you want. It's a fantastic end to an album. But let's move on to the next album, 1971's Sticky Fingers. With stone staples such as Brown Sugar, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, and Wild Horses, Sticky Fingers could be the best Rolling Stones album ever created. And I, you know what? It's, it's a debate I have inside of my own fucked up head all of the time. It's so good. I re-listened to it the whole, like the whole thing. I listened to the whole album maybe three times over the other day because of how good it is. Um, never had an album had more swagger or such a ferocity to it by them. Probably the most aggressive so far um, that they had done. 1971's Sticky Fingers was also, also showed a different side of the band. With the help of Mick Taylor and excessive touring between 1969 and 1971, the Stones were now experimenting with Latin-inspired music and fusing it with Southern soul. So that's why, like, on this album, this is, like, going forward, like, these are my favorite strings. Like, like I said, I like Let It Bleed. I think I like Beggar's Banquet a little more just because it has more of a, like, dirtier vibe to it, I guess. But Sticky Fingers is definitely in my top three. I don't really know. I'll, I'll do my... I'll rank them at the end, but, um, like, on the song, um, Bitch, it's, like, that's a, that's a great, like, blues rock song, and then, um, uh, Can't You Hear Me Knocking, that's the song that I introed with, is great, Brown Sugar, I think, I believe, was actually originally a Little Richard song, I can't, I mean, I don't think they perform it anymore, because, uh, you know, it's lyrical content, you know, they probably shouldn't be, but, um, I would listen to song Dead Flowers, Moonlight Mile, um, to really see the, uh, and Sway is probably my, like, one of my favorites on the fucking album. Um, I'd listen to that, uh, to really get that vibe, but let's move forward. If you think of the year this album came out, you'd realize the Stones were now competing with the best of the best. Led Zeppelin was on the rise. Black Sabbath was creating a new movement that was quickly rising. The Doors just re- just released L.A. Woman, arguably their best album. Solo acts Elton John and David Bowie were filling up stadiums quicker than the Steelers. You also have bands such as Funkadelic and Pink Floyd making music no one had ever dreamed of, and although the Beatles had broken up, all four Beatles were already proven to be extremely successful on their own. So... I read a lot about the year 1971 in music because it's just incredible, like, the kind of stuff that was coming out. It's hard to find bad music from that period, in my opinion. I mean, you can find stuff, and you know what, there are, like, there's so many bands that released material that year that I could bring up. Aerosmith, I believe, that was, it was either 70 or 71 that they released their debut album, which is fantastic. Um... The Who, The Who, whatever. I guess I'll have to do a series over them, but, like, whatever. They released uh, one of their better albums that year. Um, It's just Little Richard released an album that's really good in that year. But the Rolling Stones weren't going up against uh, fucking the Turtles anymore or fucking, you know, the Peacocks or whatever kind of stupid 60s uh, doo-wop rock band. They're not going up against... They're not, like... They're, the people they're having to compete with in the market are now, like, surpass... Or they're trying to surpass them, and the Stones are like... That's why I believe that the music that they put out in these years is their best, because they were pushed, I believe, competitively by what was going on. And, like, they were more than likely inspired with what was going on around them. And it pushed them to their best, I believe. So, 
With all that being said, the competition was only going to get tougher for the Stones going further, but Sticky Fingers, along with the next few Stones albums, would prove to people that they were more than ready for the task. Released in April of 1971, Sticky Fingers was actually the first album the Rolling Stones released on their own label, Rolling Stones Records. After previously being contracted by Decca Records and London Records in the UK and the United States since 1963, the original cover art, actually, was conceived by Andy Warhol and designed by Andy's art collective, The Factory, which was actually just, uh, it was Andy Warhol's, like, um, his studio in New York, which was technically three different places, and uh, he was there from 62 to 84, um, it was also, it was a famous meeting place for, uh, British douchebags, such as, uh, and, you know, folk singers alike, you know, you got guys like Lou Reed, Bob Dylan, Mick Jagger hung out there all the time, and even fucking the, the, uh, author Truman Capote, you know, there's a little fun side story for you there, um, the album was also recorded at famous southern studio Muscle Shoals Sound in Alabama, oh man, I could do a whole episode over that fucking place, this album would be the first album released by the Rolling Stones to go both number one in the UK and the United States. Um, guys, like I said, Sticky Fingers is, uh, I mean, the next two albums, I honestly couldn't tell, I, could, I honestly don't know if I, I mean, it might be my favorite Rolling Stones album, like, just the music on it is incredible, um, so I would definitely check that out, but let's move on to the next album. 1972's Exile on Main Street. Now, there's a lot of fucking source material on Exile on Main Street because it's a shit show of a story of why they recorded it. And it's honestly, if I could compare it to a modern day's art, a modern day artist, think of when Kendrick Lamar put out To Pimp a Butterfly. Exile on Main Street is the Rolling Stones' To Pimp a Butterfly. It's arguably their best work. It's like their masterpiece album. It's like Metallica's Injustice for All. Dark Side of the Moon. For, it's that good. Now, personally, I don't know if it's my favorite. Cause it, but then again, every time, it's so good. But, like, it's it's their dirtiest album by far. It is the dirtiest album the Rolling Stones ever did, bar none. So let's get into it. The story behind Exile on Main Street is one of the more fascinating stories about the band. Like, for instance, did you know that Mick Jagger and Keith Richards are tax exiles to this day? They are only allowed to stay in their home country of England for a certain amount of time out of the year because of it. That's because in the early 70s, or spring of 1971, the Labour government's uh, punitive 93% tax rate for high earners had caused the Stones and even artists like David Bowie to flee the country to escape the high tax rate. So the Stones fled to the French Riviera, Riviera to re- record their masterpiece, Exile on Main Street. And you know what? If someone tried to tax me 93%, I would uh, uh, declare I was a tax exile as well and flee the country. Um, the Rolling Stones rented out a villa called Nancote in the south of France to record 1972's Exile on Main Street. And you can tell. Whether it be the sloppy mixing, the fucking junkies, and other random people coming in and out that you can hear in the background in some of the songs if you really listen close enough. Um, Exile on Main Street truly is as raw as raw can get. Like, it, it is just like, it's definitely their rawest album. It's incredible. Um, and, you know, it's funny, uh, Mick Jagger, I think, hate like, he wishes he could redo it because he hates the recording on it, but, like, I don't think he gets, and it's his own band, that it's the sloppy mixing and recording that gives the album the vibe, like, you know, what they're going for. It was recorded on a mo- mobile recording studio. The loose and unorganized Nelcote, I believe that's how it's, uh, it's pronounced, sessions went on for hours into the night with personnel varying day to day. They were also, like, uh, you know, vicious fucking drug addicts at this point. Like, they're on heroin, blow, horse tranquilizers, fucking whippets. I'm sure they're, you know, taking whatever they can. And I, I don't, I don't ever, I've never read anything about them stopping to eat a cheeseburger one time in this. Um, this whole album would be recorded in a makeshift studio in a basement on a mobile recording studio. Um, this album being done in its, in its art of the, uh, ordin- is, it's out of the ordinary, uh, fashion may have been a major contributor 
to the dirty vibe and mood that um, Exile on Main Street had. Whatever it is, songs like Sweet Virginia, great. Rip This Joint, awesome. Tumbling Dice, and Ventilator Blues, the best, convinced many music critiques that Exile Main Street was the finest album the Rolling Stones had ever made. Don't argue with me, argue with your mom. I don't give a fuck. If working in a small basement in a strange, unfamiliar setting didn't slow progress, the drugs all around the band didn't help either. By this time, Keith Richards had now begun doing heroin daily, and thousands of pounds of heroin a week were flowing through the villa, um, uh, southern, and uh, it was flowing through the villa, and also flowing through the villa were visitors such as Terry Southern, Graham Parsons of the Hollies, uh, John Lennon, oh, sorry, Graham Nash is of the Hollies, Graham Parts, my bad, Graham Parsons was not in the Hollies, uh, John Lennon would also show up, and Marshall Chess, who was the son of Leonard Chess, and had recently been hired to serve as president of the Rolling Stones' own label, so he was running the Rolling Stones' own studio label, basically, a record label, basically. Graham Parsons was actually asked to leave one night because of his obnoxious behavior and an attempt by Keith to rid the villa of drugs after being pressured by French police to do so. He 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 attracted a lot of attention, and after Keith had to flush all of his fucking heroin, I imagine he was pretty pissed. Keith Richards is the, definitely the kind of guy that would kick your ass if you had made him flush all of his heroin down the toilet because you drawn attention to him. You know what? needed As he should have. Graham Parsons sounds like a fucking nerd. Moving on. Mick Jagger and Bill Wyman didn't spend much time at Nilcote. They instead took charge of the recordings going on in Los Angeles for the album. Before the album, Mick always wanted to remix and do the uh, and redo the original mixings due to the choppiness of the album. And Wyman just wasn't a fan of the aura and vibe of uh, Nilcote. Um, like, like there's so much on Exile and Main Street that you can read about, but, like, the the real reason behind it, uh, them recording there, and, like, if you look up pictures of this place, it just looks like a fucking drug, a drug den, you know, there's cigarette butts everywhere, fucking shirtless hippies with, with, you know, track marks on their fucking forearms, like, it looks, it, like, it looks like it smelled bad, no one was eating any food except, I think, for Bill Wyman, because he was just pissed off because he couldn't get any sleep. Because the Rolling Stones would stay up all night recording off and on. And, like, how it went, from my understanding, is, like, they'd spend two weeks recording straight and then, you know, take a couple weeks off to do drugs and then record another two weeks and so on and so forth. So, and, like, they were only staying there because of the high tax rate that that was put on them. And, like, to this day, Keith Richards and Mick Jagger can only live in their hometown or in their home country they can only live there a couple months out of the year because of it and um there's a lot more you can read into that i feel like they should write a fucking book about exile on main street but me we got to move into the future it's time we got to get into uh into our next album so which is goat's head soup which was released in 1973 and it's one of my personal favorites uh i would check out the song star star it is one of my favorite fucking rolling stones songs ever so, Let It Bleed, Sticky Fingers, and Exile on Main Street all proved that the Stones were on top of the hill and weren't coming down anytime soon. In fact, the Stones to this day haven't stopped, and 1973's Goathead Soup was a testament to that statement. Um, like I said in the last episode, I don't know if you're aware or if you live under a fucking rock. Um, the Rolling Stones to this day are still like one of the best I mean, one of the highest, uh, like, they're one of the biggest attractions in the world, um, to this day as a band. Um, they were also one of the first rock bands to ever play in Cuba, which they did, like, in the last, I think it was five years ago. There's actually a really cool documentary on it. It's called, uh, The Rolling Stones, uh, something about Rio, or, or, no, something about Cuba. I don't know, some Spanish, I can't, I can't remember what it's called, I'm sorry, my apologies, but, um. The Rolling Stones were huge. No, but they didn't open for anybody. Let's just put it that way in the 70s. Um, it didn't matter who you were. If you, ACDC, you opened for the Rolling Stones. Leonard Skinner, you opened for the Rolling Stones. Um, Led Zeppelin, 
wouldn't agree to it because, but you know, because the Rolling Stones would say, "Well, you're opening for us, so you're not playing," and you know, Led Zeppelin wouldn't. I get it. Um, I I truly don't know if there was a bigger band in the world during the '70s. I'm not saying there weren't artists or so like Elton John ran the 1970s. Everybody, he's gonna get a series. He's got a really cool life, and uh, I'm gonna have a lot of. It's gonna be a lot of fun going over him, but like. He ran the 70s, honestly. But as a band, the Rolling Stones, like, were the biggest ticket. Like, they were. Every every festival you saw, they were the headliners. And for good reason. I mean, I don't know if you're, you're aware, but at this point, they've, they've put out over 10 albums as a band. And it doesn't even feel like it. But I just, like, if like going over the content. And, you know, it's hard to speak objectively because... Um, you can literally listen to the Rolling Stones and not like them and everything I'm saying you think is bullshit but like with bands like them the like you know and the whole like I explained the whole reason I'm doing the episode over them I mean they're undeniable like I was talking to my friend the other day about something and um we were talking about music and I was telling him I love undeniable music you know whether it be something's you know small or whatever it's just like you just listen to it and it's just you can't fucking deny how good it is whether you it's your preference or not i mean for instance i think pure heroin the album by lord is just fucking it's fantastic i don't it's not my kind it's not typically i wouldn't listen to that kind of shit but like that album is undeniable it's it's too good like tennis court right in a fucking 400 lux get out of here all right let's see i listen to everything it's, i don't just listen to rock music all right i'm not just banging my head in my apartment by myself when my girlfriend's at work okay um <laughs> i mean i am but like not when i'm talking to you people though so um anyway all those albums had proved that they were still on top of the hill and they weren't coming down anytime soon um and so due to their status as tax exiles, Goat's Head Soup was uh, recorded mostly out of the uh, United Kingdom in places like Jamaica, which they would record a lot in. They love Jamaica. Um, and the United States. They recorded in the United States a lot as well. They still partially recorded... Uh, sorry. They, st- <laughs> they still partially recorded in London when they were allowed. Um, it was the 13th american studio album uh, released in the united United states it was released august 31st 1973 um it's weird the way uh album releases work between the united states and the united kingdom um some bands you can find more material if you look at their united uh their uk releases and some bands have more united states releases i don't get it um and you know what's cool about Goat's Head Soup? It's like it's a very funky album. I'll say that. Um, it's much more uplifting. Um, you know, they always have to, at this point they had their signature sound, but like it's a much more uplifting. Like Exile on Main Street. Um, like I said, like you could literally hear people just fucking walking around in the background. You know, asking for heroin. You can hear a bunch of French prostitutes. You know talking about how they haven't put deodorant on in three years, you know. Um, but, like, with Goat's Head Soup, it, it's, with like, you know, it's much, like I said, it's much more uplifting. It's more fun, I would say. And not saying Exile on Main Street isn't fun because, you know, it's like songs like Rip This Joint and everything are really fucking good and fun. But, like, like Goat's Head Soup was just, um, it was like a, uh, you know, coming out of the fucking the 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 tunnel the hole the cave you're coming out of the cave and the sun hits your face that's a that's how i fucking explain that um due in part to and like all of that was due in part to longtime producer jimmy miller who once again helped create a third straight number one album that's right go ted soup exile on main street and um sticky fingers all went number one in the charts on in the United Kingdom and the United States. Um, Let It Bleed went number one in the United States, but number two in the United Kingdom, I believe. So these three albums have all went number one, um, respectively, on their own. Um, 
with songs like Winter, which actually, uh, what's cool about Winter is that the way they were recording it, uh, Mick Jagger, and, like, they have such cool, like, um, like, recording methods and styles and everything, and things that, how they, how they created music, how, like, it would just start, Mick Jagger was the only person in the studio, and he was just strumming his guitar, and Winter is a very pretty song, um, it's got it's it's got Mick Jagger and Mick Taylor in it. Keith Richards isn't on the song because it was like recorded on a whim, which they did a lot. Um, with songs like Winter and Dancing with Mr. D, my favorite on the album other than Star Star. Angie, my mom's name. Scarlet and Heartbreaker. Goat's Head Soup is, in my opinion, some of the purest and best original work the Stones had done in years. And it was also the first album since their Satanic Majesty's Request where it was completely like original music. No covers at all on this album. Um, what's cool is uh, Jimmy Page actually um, played on this record. And you know what? He worked with the Stones in the studio a lot. Um, I'm, he's a big Keith Richards fan, I'm pretty sure, and uh, he's actually on the song Heartbreaker, and it's a fantastic song, you can totally tell, having them on the same fucking song is just incredible, but like, and all this time, they've got their same like members coming in and out, like working with them in the studio, like Nicky Hopkins, and, um, and Billy Cox, and all those guys, uh, but like, what makes Goat's Head Soup really cool is it's just, it really, do, like, like the fact that it is all original music, it, it is, like, that's why I think it's the purest stuff the Stones ever did, um, just because it didn't sound like, they just went in the studio and recorded, like, you could tell that, uh, they, they were, I, I feel like they probably had a lot of fun recording that album, that's what I'll say. It's only rock and roll. Up next, the final album Mick Taylor would be on. What's going to happen? It, uh, the end of the Gilded Age of the Rolling Stones was coming to an end. The Stones were on an incredible hot streak of content they had created. Like everything, like boom, stick, uh, let it bleed. Boom, sticky fingers. Boom, fucking uh, Exile on Main Street. Then boom, Goat's Head Soup. And... And this album would actually, like I said, be the final album that Guitars McTaylor would appear on. But just because this era was coming to an end doesn't mean they weren't going away. They were just getting started. And it's true. But let's get into it. Released on October 18th, 1974, its only rock and roll was the 14th studio album released by the Rolling Stones. It continued the trend of reggae-influenced rock. Because, you know, they, their time in uh, Jamaica, they'd actually collaborated with a lot of jamaican artists the rolling stones have always collaborated collaborated with a lot of artists and a lot of their music reflects what they're into at the time and a lot of this mid-70s stuff you could see uh especially with uh this album is uh you can tell that it that the god of you can tell that the influence they took from reggae musicians that they'd met on the island um they once again and it like the way they've and I'm sorry to keep on, but like the way they fuse reggae and blues is just fucking incredible. Like they are geniuses and you know, some people may say they steal or whatever, but like, you know, you fucking make the song, uh, dance with dancing with Mr. D. That's just fucking, that's, that's incredible right there. Like that you can't steal that. Sorry. Um, moving on. They once again they had another number one album, even though it went number two in the UK. Um, it's only rock and roll was an important transitional album for the Rolling Stones. Which, first of all, going back to that, do you know how hard it was to get it, like who they were going up against for them to have these many number one albums, especially in the United States, where they're a British base, like they're a British band and they're based in the UK, and they're still like they go a number one in the United States everywhere, which you know British rock was at the time much more prominent. But you know that's why we're telling the story of rock and roll. You know that's why you all are fucking dedicated rock students. God, I sound like such a fucking nerd. Moving on, it's only rock and roll was an important transitional album for the Rolling Stones. It was their first album not produced by Jimmy Miller, who had been with them since Beggar's Banquet. Which, like I said, Beggar's Banquet, even though it was still technically Brian Jones era, two, It's Only Rock and Roll is the best string in albums, in my opinion. Like I said, and it's the Jimmy Miller rec uh, 
era. It's kind of like Seinfeld when Larry David left. Like, it was still good, but, like, Larry David and Jerry Seinfeld are a great team of writers, so. Um, and it was, but this, this album was actually self-produced by Keith Richards and Mick Jagger, and they were going under their pseudonym, the Glimmer Twins, which, I don't know how the fuck they came up with that. It's not a good name, in my opinion, but, you know, hey, to each his own. Moving on. The title track was actually recorded separately from the rest of the album. It was laid down by the members of the Faces, which is a great uh, uh, early late 60s, early 70s uh, British rock band that was actually, um, the lead singer was actually Rod Stewart, who is, I fucking love Rod Stewart. Um, it was laid down by members of the Faces, including Ronnie Wood and drummer Kenny Jones, who would go on to replace Keith Moon in The Who in the early 80s. How about that? And uh, they laid this track down during a jamming session with Mick Jagger, David Bowie, and bassist Willie Weeks. Work on the... And, uh, like, you know, the work on this album began... Like, the rest of the album, because the the title track album, uh, It's Only Rock and Roll, it was recorded separately. So the rest of the album, they, they started working on it uh, immediately after their autumn European tour. The uh, the band was the supporting act for the Rolling Stones on that European tour that did which the, the band which I actually had an interaction with one of my listeners I believe on Twitter about uh, the band and Levon Helm and all of them and I love them a lot but um and you know speaking of uh, all that but like anyway like so the title track was recorded by with members of the Faces and like David Bowie and all those guys and it has Ron Wood playing like a twelve string acoustic guitar on it it's fucking cool. But anyway, um, Keith Richards had said that they were hot off the road and just wanted to get back in the studio and record some new material. Belgian painter Guy Pielart was invited to do the album cover after seeing his work in the book Rock uh, Dreams, which I want. I want the fucking. I want the book. It's so, it sounds so cool, which featured illustrations of various rock musicians. It's only rock and roll was the first. A self-produced album with the Rolling Stones behind the producer's chair since their Satanic Majesty's request. It was also the first under the Glimmer Twins pseudonym. Starting with uh, this release, all future Rolling Stones albums would be self-produced or in collaboration with an outside producer. They always had it. Since this album, they have always self-produced their own albums, unless they've had another guy come in from outside, which, you know, they still have a hand in everything that they do, and their say, their say is final. The song Luxury showed the band's growing interest in reggae music while Till the Next Goodbye and If You Really Want to Be My Friend continued their immersion in ballads. Ron Wood, guitarist of The Faces and longtime friend of the band, began to get closer to the band during these sessions after having Mick Taylor play on his debut solo album, I've Got My Own Album to Do, which is a great debut solo album name, I must say. Taylor spent some time recording and hanging out at Wood's house, The Wick, which is a very British name, especially to give your own fucking house. Keith Richards and Mick Jagger soon came into the fold, and they all started getting closer while also laying down tracks together. But as the relationship with Ron Wood was growing, their relationship with Mick Taylor was souring. wasn't going well. In part because, you know, I imagine Mick Taylor's going through a lot of changes. He was from the age of 20 to 25. You know, he probably never felt accepted by the band because he knew that he was just, you know, he wasn't a founding member. I bet that was very well known. They made it well known. Um, It's Only Rock and Roll was the last album to feature guitarist Mick Taylor. Similar to Go Ted Soup, which Mick Taylor received no writing credits... Taylor uh, had a falling out because he didn't receive writing credits for It's Only Rock and Roll. Taylor reportedly made songwriting contributions on Till the Next Goodbye and Time Waits for No uh, One, but all original songs only credited Mick Jagger and Keith Richards, which pissed him off, you know, and, you know, as it should. Taylor felt wronged because they had worked so close together in the studio and that they were also close friends. Like, they, they worked very closely together on this album, so he really felt betrayed. And he did, so he didn't understand why he wouldn't get the credit he deserved. Um, and that happened a lot under the Glitter uh, Twins uh, 
pseudonym, the writing, the the creative duo of Mick Jagger and Keith Richards. They truly do rule with an iron fist. Um, his statements, however, were contradicted by Mick Jagger in a 1995 Rolling Stone interview where he said maybe Taylor threw in a quarter or two, which, I mean, come on, Mick. Why you be such a fucking asshole? Taylor had also developed a bad heroin addiction. Uh-oh. He admitted that he left because that in a docu- uh, he had, he admitted in documentary Crossfire Hurricane um, that uh, he had also you know he really had a really bad you know heroin addiction. That's what ultimately made him quit the band and leave. Um, he also was never truly happy with his contributions in the band and even felt he was playing below his skill level. He had a lot of choice words to say about the Rolling Stones. Um, after he had left uh, around the mid-80s about how, you know, he, they sounded bad whenever he first met him and how he couldn't even understand how they could record a, a hit record. But ultimately, Mick stated that he left the band to protect his family from the band's uh, causistic lifestyle. On December 12th, 1974, the band was at a party in London where he broke the news to Mick Jagger and walked out and never looked back. Taylor left the band just before the recording of the Black and Blue album where Mick Taylor's replacement, Ron Wood, would make his debut. And that's where we're going to pick back up next week, ladies and gentlemen, for part three of the Rolling Stones. Um, And a quick little, uh, you know, side piece, like, you know, another album that they had put out during this time, which my album recommendation of the week is going to be because it's a very obscure Rolling Stones album. It doesn't even have Keith Richards on it, which... Um, so this album, it's called Jammin' with Edward. It was uh, recorded in 1969, and it was released in 1972. It was like a throwaway album. It was like a jam session, uh, which Jammin' with Edward. Edward was a pianist, uh, Nicky Hopkins' uh, nickname that they'd come up, come up with. And this album features um, Bill Wyman and Charlie Watts on drums and bass, but it also has Mick Jagger singing with Nicky Hopkins and then guitarist Ry Cooter, who, um, he, which there's a lot of speculation as to why Keith Richards walked out is probably because of how much they were bringing Ry Cooter in, and I guess he didn't like him too much. Um, they also were using a, a different producer for this album whenever they recorded it, and Keith Richards kind of just, like, left the band, and there, no one really knows why. It's weird, but, um, you know... I would definitely recommend the song It Hurts Me Too and uh, Blow With Rye. Like, the, but there's only six songs on the album, so it's short and it's really good. I think it gets a bad rep, but I would definitely look it up. Um, it, that's called Jamming with Edward. But anyway, um, guys, I want to thank you for uh, listening to Episode 2. Uh, episode 3, I'll tell you what, I'm, I am past giving due dates for podcast episodes. You know when Episode 3 comes out? Whenever episode three comes out, I got a lot going on, everybody. I still work full time. Uh, I got another podcast I'm doing, The War Room, which don't forget to check it out. Um, Episode six should be coming out this weekend. Um, And, uh, you know, we record on Tuesdays and Saturdays, so you'll have two episodes a week, every week. So it's a lot of work, everybody. Um, And then these episodes I'm doing, it requires a lot of writing and reading and studying, so... You know, I'm going to take my time doing it. So I'm going to leave you with some music. Uh, I want to say again that this was podcast was brought to you by Killing Time Productions. And um, I want to thank you all. And you know what? Uh, the other day, we actually said it on episode, uh, which I think I might be wrong. I think I, uh, episode seven might be the one that's about to come out. Oh, Jesus. I, I have a hard time remembering but uh, I don't. On the last episode, we uh, we uh, broke a hundred downloads, and we did that in just over two weeks. So, I want to thank you if you're listening to our podcast and downloading and listening and sharing. So, don't forget to follow us on Spotify and Apple and share everything that we put out. Um. So uh, anyway, thank you for listening. Um, I will see you all next uh, whenever. I don't know. It's been two weeks since I uh, you know between episode one and two. So who knows. Uh, But episode three will come out soon, hopefully. I'm going to get to work on it right away after a three-day break. (laughs) But uh, anyway, here's a song off of, uh, to, you know, end the episode off of Let It Bleed. Uh, This is Gimme Shelter. All right, everybody.
We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to the Ark of Rock.